today on Ag News Daily. From international stability to safe transport to easily accessible food and energy, it's all dependent upon the Americans' commitment to a security paradigm. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here on this August 16th. It is a Thursday, and I am joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, you're not at the Iowa State Fair. How you doing? I'm good, Mike. I'm glad I don't have to be there today. I needed a break off. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's nice to catch a little breather, do a little rest, and then just kind of get that, that cotton candy and funnel cake smell out of your clothes. Oh, I haven't noticed that smell yet. Oh, all right. Well, we're also joined, of course, by Hannah Pagel. And Hannah Pagel, your time with us is getting close to coming to an end, and it's very, very sad. How you doing? You know, Mike, you bring it up, and yeah, it's it's so bittersweet. I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm not ready to leave you guys, but I guess the next adventure is calling. So change is good, right? No, yeah. change is awful. Yeah, change is, change is always bad. As you get older, Hannah, you'll learn that. Change is terrible. Terrible. But things are always changing in the world of agriculture, and sometimes that change is positive. And uh, we're going to have a really fun interview a little bit later on with a geopolitics expert named Peter Zion with a different view than what we're used to about the state of international trade. But before we get into that, let's hear some of the headlines. Delaney, what's jumping out at you today? Today is officially one year since trade officials have come together to renegotiate NAFTA. I can't believe it's been a year already. And of course, we're no, not really any closer to finding a deal with Canada. However, um, politicians and folks close to the issue are optimistic that we're going to have an agreement finished here between the U.S. and Mexico. Some of those big sticking points still remain. Um, the sunset clause, the Canada's quota program that affects the U.S. dairy industry. And so, I don't know, don't have any other insight other than that, but I just thought that was fascinating that it's it's been a year officially now. Yeah, it's been a full year. And I've got a quote here from Donald Trump. Reportedly, this is what he told uh, Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade rep, um, about NAFTA. He said, quote, we have much better alternatives than that, the old NAFTA agreement. Mm-hmm. So if you can't make the right deal, don't make it, end quote. That's what Trump supposedly told Lighthizer. I don't get what the right deal is, though. I don't don't know either. That's kind of the question, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Hmm. Well, Hannah, what do you have for us today? Well, kind of on the topic of change and whatnot, uh, this is officially, or today officially is when Bayer can absorb Monsanto. So one of the requirements from the U.S. Department of Justice was that the two companies had to remain separate until the completion of the divestment by Bayer to BASF. So that finally concluded today. And so now Bayer can acquire Monsanto and it can have access. This is actually um, prior to today, Bayer did not have any access to detailed information about Monsanto. Um, and it also could not get into that whole lawsuit about glyphosate with Monsanto. So now it can finally jump on that bandwagon and can start representing Monsanto. And Bear did come out with a comment saying that they are hopeful that the judges 
are going to start looking at the science and they can maybe get an appeal going for this case. But when I was reading it, I kind of found it was very interesting because I know they're targeting Monsanto about the glyphosate case, but now that Bayer is acquiring Monsanto, you know, Bayer is a pharmaceutical company mainly, so I wonder if that will have anything in terms of how it will all go down. Does that make sense? Yeah, and Mm -hmm. and I think it might because, you know, uh, a lot of people who maybe don't get as into the weeds, uh, to use a pun, in this issue, are used to hearing Monsatan, Mon- you know, and they're getting rid of the Monsanto yeah. name, which could be a good thing, I think, long term. Mm-hmm. It could be. At least in regards to public relations, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got another Monsanto bear update. So, Hannah, as you mentioned, today's the day when that all becomes official. And according to Reuters, this was a special report that they've been working on. The two independent, largest independent seed sellers, seed sellers, Bex Hybrids and Stein Seed, told Reuters they are pushing the EPA to ban in-season dicamba applications. Wow. Sunny Beck, yeah, this is big news. So Sunny Beck said that Beck Seeds sold more than a million bags of extend Roundup Ready 2 soybeans last year, but they're worried that continued trouble with dicamba through drift, through volatility, through perhaps folks not paying enough attention to the weather conditions. He's worried that'll give agriculture a bad look and time to pursue different chemicals, time to pursue different modes of action, and we can't be using dicamba during the growing season. Just use it for burn down like we have in the mm-hmm. past. Interesting. We should try and get on a Bex representative or somebody to talk about their thought process behind that. Yeah, yeah, or what certainly. what solution would be. You bet. Interesting. Well, let's see. I've got some other tariff-related news here. The Chinese Commerce Department or Ministry today announced that it will be sending over a trade delegation to the U.S. ahead of any more escalations in tariffs and I'm not sure how many folks will be part of that group, but they are trying to make some moves here to get that done before the next round of tariffs goes into effect. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we saw the market respond to that announcement earlier today. Absolutely did. And I had one other piece that while we're talking about China, I wanted to fill us in on another piece of Chinese related news as we're watching the development of African swine fever in China. Another case has been detected or another, I wouldn't really call it case because it affected a hog or it was found in a slaughterhouse uh, where 30 pigs died from the infection of African swine fever located in the Zhenghao, Henan province. Um, And they came from a province over 500 miles to the northeast of where the first reported herd was detected approximately two weeks ago. So it looks like it's Traveling pretty quickly, the outbreak is starting to. You know, I saw the same thing, Delaney, and it said the distance between the two outbreaks indicates that the disease is in multiple locations Uh in the country. So that's not good news at all. And they were also talking about how I believe Smithfield has some, some hogs or some slaughterhouses in the area, and so they're concerned that this is going to roll over into production or into hog products. So that's just not a not good news all around. 
Mm. Well, it's not good news for Chinese hog producers, but for the American pork producer, we saw the market respond to this announcement today as well. That is true, Mike. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but I think you guys hit the nail on the head. The fact that they don't know where these outbreaks are coming from means this thing is probably just getting started in China. And we will certainly have to keep an eye on it, but it could be bullish long term for the American producer, even if it impacts food availability in China. And I've got a segue on food availability here. There was an op-ed published in The Hill, the online newspaper about politics and whatnot, uh, from three former ag secretaries, Dan Glickman, Ann Veneman, and Tom Vilsack, and it's bipartisan. Tom and Dan are Democrats, and Ann's a Republican, served under uh, George W. Bush during his first term. And they all wrote together saying that it's time for the conference committee on the Farm Bill to put their differences aside and go back Mm -hmm. to focusing on nutrition. They hit on a lot of the points that we talk about quite a bit. 80% of the bill's funding goes towards SNAP. It's the nation's largest food nutrition program. And they say we need to focus on keeping that as a component of the farm bill. And they don't even mention splitting up the farm bill. You know, can't do that. We've got to make sure SNAP is available. And I just thought that was interesting from a, a bipartisan perspective. That is interesting. And actually, speaking of the farm bill, Mike, I'm going to segue into my last piece of news as we're talking about farm bill discussions here. Senate Agriculture Chairman Pat Roberts is planning to call the first formal meeting of the Farm Bill Conference Committees shortly after Labor Day to try and make some headway in settling the differences between the House and the Senate version. And they're, they were hoping to have one before Labor Day, but I think that timeline has shifted a little bit. But they're hoping that staff members will take some direction from the conference members and help in some of the research and and the nitty gritty work, I guess you could call it, of getting a farm bill put together. All right. Well, you know, it's still moving a heck of a lot faster than I had assumed it would. So I've got no complaints. October 31st is when it expires? Yeah, October 31st. 31st or October 1st. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember. So, yeah, whatever it is, we've still got a little bit of time in there. They're making progress. Well, and Delaney, in in this article that I saw, it mentioned that there was more than 120 groups that was representing different segments of the animal agriculture industry. They sent a letter to Roberts and the other Senate conference um, members And they were talking about they wanted to expand a vaccine bank. Have you Mm -hmm. have you seen much on that or I think it's going back again to the FMD vaccine bank. Um, But but like we I mean, like Mike just mentioned, a very small portion of the funding actually goes to funding things like a vaccine bank or ag programs. because it's like 76 percent of farm bill funding goes to programs like SNAP and Mm -hmm. supplemental nutrition programs. So that's the only insight I have into it right now. I'm not sure that they would have the – they have – the way I understand it, Congress has allocated to put a vaccine bank together, but they don't have the funds for the the bank. Okay. Well, that wraps up all of my news, and I think all of your guys' too. So, Mike, why don't you get us into the markets to see where we ended up for the day? Absolutely. It'll be nice to finally read some good news for our producers here in the markets. But before we do this, i got to remind you, our markets are brought to us by our great friends over at the Zaner Group. Give them a call today. Put a plan together to manage your marketing risk. 
they can help you. Call 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Well, folks, it is green up and down the screen in the grains today, starting with corn. The September contract up three and three quarter cents at 365 and a quarter. December also up three and three quarters, closed at 379 and three quarters. And soybeans, holy moly, hold the cannoli. Here we go. September contract up 28 cents on the day, closed at 88, excuse me. 885 and a half. November also up 28. Finished the day at 897 even. In the wheat pit, Chicago September contract up 10 cents at 542 and a quarter. December also up 10 and a quarter to close the day at 562 even. Looking over on the livestock side, we've still got green on the screen. The August live cattle contract unchanged on the day at 108.32.50. October up 27.50, finished at 109.27 and a half. In feeder cattle, the August contract up a dollar 22 and a half at 150.27.50. The September up 97 and a half cents to close at 150.12 and a half. And in lean hogs, who I haven't gotten the chance to say this in quite a while, the October contract limit up on the day higher by three dollars, finished at 55.47.50. In this December, limit up, close the day at 52.45. Quick look over at the dairy market in class three milk. We've got the August contract down three cents on the day at 14.97, with September down 15 to finish at 15.87. Before we jump into our conversation with Peter Zion, let's hear a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds. Joining me this week is Phil Long from Latham High Tech Seeds. Phil, harvest is coming up. We're starting to think about winter and, of course, next spring. And for a lot of folks, that means cover crops. Latham Seeds does sell cover crops. What do growers need to be thinking about this time of year if that's an avenue they're considering? Yeah, definitely, Mike. There's a lot of guys that are that are starting to use cover crops, and I know guys that are seeing even yield benefits from them. Uh, but beyond that, a lot of, a lot of the, the majority of guys are using a cereal rye. Uh, tends to be the top choice just because of the length of the window that you have to get it in. It's the hardiest cereal, cereal grain that we really have, not to be confused with rye grass. Uh, but cereal rye works really well after corn, before soybeans the best in terms of weed control and uh, managing moisture and organic matter and so forth. Um, but it's a, an excellent choice to fly on as well. Um, even for those guys in the south that's been staying kind of dry down there, you know, getting it on there before the leaves completely drop and harvest um, will provide a good opportunity for that to take up moisture. It, it germinates fairly easily, so that's the, the good thing, but drilling is also another option that can be done with rye even up into November and still see really good success. Fantastic. Folks, if cover crops is something you're considering this year, give the folks at Latham Seeds a call. They can help you with every aspect of it, and you can reach them at 877-GO-LATHAM or on the website at LathamSeeds.com. Well, folks, joining us today is Peter Zion. He is a geopolitics expert. I've had the chance to listen to him speak several times, and he is the author of two books, the Accidental Superpower, and the Absent Superpower. Mr. Zion, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. Now, I want to talk to you about global trade and, and how things are shaping up around the world, but before we get to that, can you tell us your, your core thesis behind your two books? Where do you see the future headed? 
the short version is the world's going to hell, but the Americans are going to sit this one out. Uh, the global system was created by the Americans in order to fight the Cold War, and everything that we understand about the global system, from international stability to safe transport to easily accessible food and energy, is all dependent upon the Americans' commitment to a security paradigm that's perfectly blunt is now three decades out of date. And so I do not see Trump as a bug. I see him as a feature. He is simply moving the United States in the direction of a strategic policy that makes more sense for the United States' geography. Now, is he doing that in the most intelligent, even-handed uh, way possible with an eye to the long view? Absolutely not. Uh, but this is more of a problem for everyone else than it is for the United States. Okay, and so you think this is really the beginning of an inward turn for America? I mean, as as a trade policy, as financial policy, as market policy, we're going to be focused more on the... Do you think it's America itself, or is it North America, Mexico, and Canada together? Well, the Canada and the Mexico sides, the uh, the debate's still out on that one, and that will that certainly be something that dominates the rest of the Trump term and whoever takes over after him. But at this point, the global system, the end is very nigh, uh, and we're already seeing a complete end to any sort of American interest uh, on either side of the aisle in maintaining the global structure that no longer serves American strategic purposes. Now, in the going through the motions of getting from here to there, I don't mean to suggest the straight line. There's a lot of bumps along the way. Uh, but on the other side of this, the United States looks great. And in fact, American agriculture is probably going to be the sector of the American economy that does the best for the next 50 years. Okay. And now that is a... a an idea that's hard to see from where we're sitting today as we look at deteriorating trade relationships with China, you know, the EU, Japan, and so forth. How is American agriculture, an industry that truly depends on exports, going to be a benefactor in this inward shift? Well, there's three pieces to the equation. The first is to understand why the United States set up the global system in the way it did. At the end of World War II, we had the option of facing down the Soviets, who were numerically superior in every way that mattered, uh, when we were on the, in a different hemisphere. So we, in essence, needed to find a way to purchase loyalty from a new set of allies. And the Bretton Woods system, the global order, NATO, that is all part and parcel of the same thing. We, in essence, created a global structure that allowed anyone purchase any product from anywhere, ship it home safely, turn it into a finished product, then export it to the wider world. And this generated the longest period of peace and prosperity in human history. Just never forget that the United States didn't do this because it wanted trade. It used trade as a bribe in order to bring everybody else on board. So we took our geography, which is by far the best in the world, and we basically subsidized everybody else. Uh, because of that, we kind of pissed away some of what makes the United States special. So Midwestern farmers found themselves competing with Brazilian farmers who, under normal circumstances, couldn't compete. The American Steel Belt found itself competing with other countries, and it became the American Rust Belt. If you remove American support for the order, a lot of that goes in the other direction, and America's natural geographic gifts come back into play, and a lot of other countries fall behind. So that's piece one. Piece two is demographics. Uh, people economically function differently based on their age. So if you're in your 20s and your 30s, it's all about raising kids and buying cars and buying homes. There's a lot of spending. 
If you're in your 50s and your 60s, you're saving for retirement, but you've paid for your house and the kids are gone, so you're not really spending too much. So your investments are very high. And then third, once you retire, uh, everybody kind of shifts gears and the income stops and you start drawing from the system in terms of pension and health care. Now, part of the global boom that we have seen in the last 30 years is that the global population overall is heavily concentrated in that middle category, the mature workers. High degrees of disposable income, lots of investment, big tax bases. That's the demographic moment in which the Europeans combined into the Eurozone, in which the Chinese and the Brazilian rise happened, in which the Russian resurgence took place. So the most overcapitalized, financially flush period in human history we're in right now. But the majority of the world boomer class will have retired by the end of the year 2024. In fact, most of them by 2022. So they will go from providing all this capital to the system to all of a sudden drawing from the system. We think of the boomer retirement here as a big deal. Uh, the term they like to use is a snake swallowing a watermelon. Oh. But our... Sorry? <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a pretty good analogy. Yeah, well, but you got to put it in context. Because the American boomers actually had kids. Most of the other boomers in the world did not. So our boomer cadre's percentage of the population is actually the lowest in the world. And we're on the verge of a system where everybody's boomer class is retiring and we're the only ones who retire with a replacement generation. So yes, the United States has to deal with the snake digesting the watermelon. But everywhere else, the snake is digesting a Volkswagen. <laughs> and that's not the sort of thing that a modern economy can recover from. So just as the world really needs the American market to absorb everybody's exports, the United States has lost all political, economic, and strategic interest in doing so. Which brings us to the third piece. There used to be one thing that the Americans might have maintained an interest in global order for, and that would have been for energy imports. But the shale revolution has removed that from the equation completely. In fact, the United States is likely to be a net exporter of crude <coughs> excuse me, uh, sometime in 2020. And if you throw Canada into the mix, we're already a net exporter. Fun thing with the shale revolution, it produces a huge volume of natural gas as a waste product, which means that the United States is the only country in the world that is using natural gas as the primary input for its various agricultural inputs. So not only are inputs for American agriculture not dependent upon global trade, they're based upon a fuel that basically sells into the system, zero. So you put this across the world, and you've got, yes, a series of global agricultural trade relationships that right now look to be in danger. Messing with farmers is a great way to make political pieces move on the chessboard. But keep in mind what enables most of the rest of the world to grow crops in the first place requires the global trade system, especially when it comes to inputs like diesel and gasoline and fertilizer and pesticide. All of that is internationalized. And if something happens to the global trade order, Global agriculture is the industry that will get hit the hardest, but American agriculture doesn't get hit at all. 
Hmm. The road from here to there is not a straight line. But at the end of the day, there are only six countries on the planet that can actually expand agricultural output in the environment that we're going to have. And the United States can expand more than everybody else put together. So who are the other five countries that have the capability geopolitically to expand ag in this new coming environment? The two big boys are France and Argentina. They just have geographies that are relatively resistant to all the other disruptions that are becoming on. They, of course, compete with really every product suite that the United States offers. Now, the two of them combined can expand output by less than a third of what the United States can do, so don't take that as too much of a challenge, but that is where the challenge will be. Uh, Myanmar is likely to emerge as a significant rice producer, so if you're not into the world of rice, it really doesn't matter to you. Uh, um, Australia is wheat and beef, but because Australia's climate is so erratic, they're not necessarily a perennial competitor. They can have years where everything just basically gets droughted or flooded out in their production plants. Uh, the last one is New Zealand, and that's primarily a dairy play. Uh, New Zealand has absolutely the, the perfect climate for dairy. If you can imagine a Wisconsin that doesn't get hot enough in the summer that the cows need shelter, and it doesn't get cold enough in the winter that the cows need shelter, that's the New Zealand climate. And there are absolutely no indigenous animals that cause any threat to the animals whatsoever. So the, the Kiwis are going to be expanding their, their dairy herd significantly, and they're already the world's fifth largest beef exporter, even without this shift. So they're going to be playing a, a bigger role there. But that's everybody. That's all six. Wow. Now, of course... We're not dealing with the future today. We've got to have meetings with bankers. We've got to make our loan payments. What's the best play for American agriculture during this transition period, this move from dependent on a global order competing with Brazilian farmers and so on to uh, really being king of the chessboard? Well, if I'm right and we're facing a global breakdown in production, we're going to be facing starkly higher food prices on a global basis uh, moving forward for at least the next 30 years. So the question is whether or not you think the financial environment of today is going to be better or worse for farmers than the financial environment of the future. I would argue that since the baby boomers have not yet retired, and because capital flight has already started from the rest of the world to the United States, that borrowing costs today are the cheapest that they're going to be in our lives which means if you have the opportunity to take on some fresh debt right now, you're never going to have a better time for it. If you're going to expand your output, now's the time. Now, keep in mind, the first two, three, four years of that are going to be happening while the global system is in its death throes, while countries like China are putting up agricultural barriers. In the near term, it's going to be very painful, and any banker is going to look at you sideways when you say you want to increase output. But now is the time to get your baseline squared away. Wow. I, this is not a topic of conversation very often in the media today. Peter, are you hearing your line of thinking coming into play anyplace else? The evolution is definitely underway. When I started writing about issues like these about four years ago, most people just kind of looked at me sideways, and I was brought in to kind of be the entertainment and talking about alternate futures. Uh, but over the last four years that the global trade system has broken down piece by piece, 
uh, folks, particularly in the agricultural industry, have been taking it more seriously. And as the shale revolution has changed the cost structure, and as Europe and China have found bigger and bigger economic obstacles within their own systems, people are starting to take it a lot more seriously. Now, the real fun part comes when things like the World Trade Organization break down. That'll probably happen next year. Or when the Chinese system starts to have some severe financial cavitations within their own system. The biggest thing you have to remember about China is that you know the, the, the one-child policy was 25 years ago. That means they're running out of 25-year-olds. I mean, they're not nearly as good as math as they would have us believe, uh, which means that the consumption boom in China is almost that is now starting to ripple throughout the entire Chinese economy, and there is no way to fix that on anything other than a generational time frame. So we're seeing a lot of these economically unsustainable trends breaking down anyway. Donald Trump is just pushing this faster than it probably would have happened under a different president, and obviously with a lot more, how should I say, flair. <laughs> flair's, flair's a good word for it. Now, Peter, I know you've got a lot of stuff going on, but if our listeners want to learn more about your ideas for the future, where should they go to, to order your books or, or you know, learn more about you? Uh, the books are available online and in most bookstores. The, the first book is The Accidental Superpower, which explains how the world came to be in its current shape, how it's breaking down in the international crises that Americans most likely to notice. The second one is Absent, and it starts with the shale revolution, plays it forward, shows the military conflicts that will erupt because of it, and shows uh, where the Americans are going to be acting in terms of foreign policy. I just got the contract for the third book, which is called After the Superpower, and we, we basically look at the rise and the fall of the great powers in the future. Oh, interesting. And I can vouch for The Accidental Superpower. That was a book that has really changed my thinking on a lot of these issues. And I'm currently halfway through The Absent Superpower. So, you know, I hope I didn't spoil the ending here today. I have no problem with that. <laughs> well, Peter Zion, thank you so much for taking the time. This is a great perspective that we really don't hear enough in agriculture. So I really appreciate your time and your thoughtfulness on this topic. Thought I could help. Well, Delaney, Hannah, I think Peter has just a very interesting way of looking at the world. It's just a little bit different than what we've been talking about on the podcast for the past couple of weeks when it comes to trade. Yeah, uh, this very different perspective indeed. But we have folks of all different kinds of perspectives on the podcast throughout the year. So, Hannah, if folks want to hear some of those perspectives, where can they go to learn them? Well, Mike, we have a, w a lot of different ways for our listeners to get a hold of our podcast. The first is they can go directly to our website at www.agnewsdaily.com, or they can find us on social media pages, Facebook or Twitter, and just search Ag News Daily. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.